James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kate. <clears throat> cool. Um, so we're going to finish chapter four of our study in James. Um, hopefully you have a Bible. You can open up there and, and follow along. Um, I'm going to do my best to keep this section really simple. Um, because in some ways, like on the surface, what James is talking about here um, can seem really normal, it, maybe even mundane. Um, he's, he's talking about something that's absolutely normal. Absol- it's something that every person in this room will do every single day. Um, so it can come across as, as mundane, as, as normal, uh, because he's talking about planning. He's talking about making plans. Um, Put your hands up if you're like a planner. Yes. Okay. Oh, quite a few. More, more in this gathering than the last. Um, you're a planner. Love your calendar. Uh, love your journal. Going to sort out um, what things look like. If you didn't raise your hand, you might be like me. You're more of like kind of go with the flow kind of person. Um, I'm married to a planner, and so I can frustrate her a little bit um, when we're trying to map out uh, where we're going or what we're doing on a certain day. But... Um, um, if you're not a planner, um, dig in. Hang in there with me. Um, don't like turn off over the next kind of 30 minutes. Um, this is important. It's important for all of you if you're a planner or a go with the flow kind of person. Because what I found is it's in the ordinary, it's, it's in the normal everyday stuff of a life of a Christian that we can easily kind of turn off. We can easily go astray. Um, so we have this phrase that we use here at Village. We want to be ordinary people that do ordinary things, but with gospel intentionality. So we don't hype up a lot of stuff uh, at, at Village. We don't, you probably don't hear us say, like, come along, it's going to be amazing, like, because it might not be. Um, we're just, we just want to be a, a family, and a normal family is just, it's, it's ordinary. We're just doing ordinary things, but what sets us apart is we do it with these things with gospel intentionality. What that means is we want the gospel, we want the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has, he has died and rose from the grave for you to, to infiltrate every area of our lives. We want the good news of Jesus to, to affect, to change the way that we live our lives, especially in the, the everyday, ordinary um, approach to our lives. So the gospel of Jesus Christ, it changes the way that I put my children to bed at night. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes the way we, uh, I talk to my neighbor over my fence on a Saturday. Normal stuff. Um, it changes the way that we spend our money on our weekly shopping. The gospel of Ch- Jesus Christ, uh, James says here, should change the way that you make plans in your life. Um, I said a couple weeks ago that James is, it's kind of a sequel to Hebrews. So the main kind of thrust of Hebrews was, was pushing us to, to persevere in our faith to the end. That's what Hebrews is about. 
to, to cling on to your faith in Jesus to the very end. And so James is, is, is kind of a sequel to that. He, he picks that, that theme up and he starts to put flesh on it. He, he's, James is saying, Here, here's, here's what that actually looks like. Here's what it looks like to, to, to live out your faith in Jesus. Here, here's, what it, here, here's a picture of a faith that works. Here's what it looks like to be someone who doesn't just hear the word, but actually does the word, that puts it into action. Um, so it, it's a real practical letter, James is. And here at the end of chapter 4, he's getting really practical. He says, there's an earthly way to make plans. It, it, it's kind of an unspiritual way to make plans. And then there's this heavenly, dare we say, a gospel-shaped way to make plans. And let me read the text one more time because it's pretty short. James 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Um, let me pray for us one more time. Um, Father, we thank you for uh, the gift of your written word. Um, we just pray, Holy Spirit, that um, just as we s were singing, that you would fill this place, um, that you would, um, only you can open hearts. I can't do that. Um, only you can impart truth and actually change lives. So I pray that we would hear your word, um, that it would stick, uh, and that it would change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, James is laying down the smack a little bit, isn't he? he he's definitely rebuking these brothers and sisters. He has some hard things to say, um, and so they get a little bit of a, a verbal spanking in a way. Um, you, you pick up on that rebuke straight away with those first two words in verse 13. He says, come now. It, we don't, a, a way we would say that is, hey, hey listen to me. Get, come on, man. If you're in my house and you hear disciplining going on, you'll, you'll hear, are you listening to me? That's what he's saying. And he's, he's, he's saying that. He's addressing those who say this. Well, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade and make profit. Um, so the example that he's given here is these, uh, they're probably Christian merchants. They're, they're definitely merchants. They're business people. And, and they're, they're probably most definitely Christians. We, you get that by the way he talks to them, by, by what he's calling them to do. Um, the, these are believers who are conducting business. And it's almost like we get this, this kind of peek into a business meeting, a, a peek into um, a, a planning session. They're, they're, they're planning out their next business endeavors. And, and firstly, it's important for us to understand what he's rebuking them for. And this text isn't necessarily like this kind of anti-capitalism text. He's not, he's not talking about the evils of making money here. Um, he's not even rebuking them for wanting to make money. Um, he, he's not saying it's sinful to, to want to make a profit. Um, he isn't even rebuking them for, for trying to make plans. 
Um, I was trying to think of an equivalent to this. Some of, a lot of you are, uh, you went to university possibly. You, you know, I'm going to go to this university in this city for three or four years and then I'll move on and, and hopefully find a job. Or, or some of you might be looking for a job. I might, you know, look in the wanted ads and, and look for a job and just trying to map things out a little bit and, uh, and, and make a plan. Um, planning isn't what James is, is rebuking them for. Um, what we see happening here is this, and I think this is something that we do as well, is we try to exert some kind of control over our own circumstances. We, we try to exert some sort of control over our lives, over our circumstances, and the way we often do that is by planning. We, we, make, we make plans, sometimes for some of you in great detail, um, and in many ways that's completely normal, isn't it? In, in many ways, you'd say that's completely responsible. Um, I was doing that this week. I, I, um, I'm planning a, a trip to Los Angeles to see my brother, Lucas and Sue, and, and uh, my nieces and nephew. Um, if you're planning a trip like that, you need, to, you need to organize yourself. You need to, I opened my calendar, chose some dates, looked at some flights, um, just kind of planned when I wanted to go, when the best time to do that was, booked some flights, called my brother. He's like, well, what do you want your trip to look like? I was like, give me a week. I'll think about it. We'll call, call you back. We'll make some plans. And that's what we did. So we set some solid plans, and we think this is what that trip's going to be like. Um, it's normal, isn't it? Um, it's normal to, to, to want to have some kind of control over your days by planning. We set goals, don't we? We, we do this as a church. We've, we've kind of talked about this three-year vision, these three-year goals that we want to see happen at Village over the next uh, number of years. And uh, one of those is to purchase this building. So we don't own this place. We just rent it. It's not ours. Um, so we're working towards building, uh, uh, purchasing this place. It's normal. It's, I think it's responsible. We want to have some kind of security over a, a place to gather in the city. Um, I've seen churches that don't have a place to gather over the city have a really hard time, especially over the pandemic, not really having a place to, to be. Um, we, we want there to be a gospel uh, presence at 25 Upper Newtonards Road for generations. So there's, there's been a, a gospel church here for about 100 years, and we want to see another 100 years, Lord willing, uh, of a gospel presence here. It's normal. It's good. We're working towards that. It's good to plan in that way. Now, that's not what James is rebuking them for, for, for planning. Um, in my mind, it'd almost be a lot easier if, if it was. Christians, you should not worry about tomorrow. Something that Jesus would say, isn't it? Tomorrow will worry about itself. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about making plans. Just, just kind of go with the flow. Um, that's, that's not what he's saying here. Um, my point is we all plan. It's normal. It's responsible. Um, and it's not what James is rebuking them for. If you, he's not rebuking you for your concern for the future. If you have a, a life insurance plan, I don't think James would rebuke you for that. If you have a savings account and you're, you're saving for, for a future event, I don't think James is, is rebuking you for that. I don't think he's, he's anti-stewardship here. What he is rebuking them for is a kind of planning for the future that stems from human arrogance and our ability to determine the course of future events. I'll say that again. What James is rebuking them for is a kind of planning that stems from, hu from human arrogance and our ability to determine the course of future events. 
So he's not, he's not rebuking them for making plans. He's not rebuking them for wanting to make a profit. He's rebuking them for their this-worldly confidence that they exhibit in pursuing their goals. He's rebuking them for making plans with an arrogant attitude, and an arrogance that thinks it's, it's you that determines the, the course of human events. In classic James way, he sets out this compare and contrast. You've seen him do that with, with wisdom. Um, so, um, in verse 13, he says, there's a way to make plans that, like earthly wisdom, is also an earthly way to make plans. It's, it's an unspiritual, it's an even a wicked way to make plans. And then in verse 15, he, he says, then there's this right way to make plans. There's this heavenly way to make plans. So, he's not, his point isn't, you shouldn't be making plans, so stop making plans. I feel like I'm saying plans a lot. He's saying your heart needs to be changed. Verse 15, there's still plans being made. He's, in verse 15, there still will do this and that, but it's done with a completely different heart attitude. In verse 13, he's saying there's a, there's na- there's a natural way to make plans, there's this way for every person in the room that, that there's this natural way that you will want to make plans, that you'll want to approach making goals and, and mapping out your life. And he says the natural way we do that is fundamentally wicked. It's, it's evil, it's arrogant, it's boastful. That's what he says in verse 16. James can be very direct. So when you get to verse 17, he says... Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And I don't know about you, when I first read that, that verse almost seems a bit out of left field. You're like, are you, off, are you out of context here, James? What's, what's that verse saying? But he's in context. And notice that word so at the start of verse 17. That word means therefore. It's this connecting word. He's, he's connecting what he says in verse 17 with what he says about this evil way of making plans for your life. Tim Keller says verse 17 shows us that there's this sin that is so big in your life, there's a sin that's so pervasive that you don't even see it anymore. It's, it's so big, and the reason you don't see it anymore is because to, co- to commit this kind of sin, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to make an effort at it. You don't have to exert any kind of energy at all to, to commit this kind of sin. You, you commit it simply by just going with the flow. Theologians call this kind of sin a sin of omission. There's sins of commission. You've committed this, this sin that you shouldn't be doing. You've broken one of the, the Ten Commandments. And then there's these sins of omission. You're, you're just not doing what you should be doing. They're, they're, they're subtle, aren't they? There's no effort needed at all to sin in this way. You, you sin by simply not doing anything at all. And verse 17, he's saying that this sin that's so big, that's so pervasive, that you don't see anymore, you're committing it because it just what's, it's just what happens naturally. And that what the sin that he's talking about here in that section is you're just going about your life you're just making plans in your life, but you've completely forgotten God. You're living your life as if you're the one who's in control of it. 
You're living your life as if you're the one mapping it out, as if you are the one to decide what to do with it. You're living your life as if, as if you've forgotten God. That's the big sin he's rebuking them for here. Another label we could put on it, another way to think about it is practical atheism. James would say it's not enough just to say you believe Jesus is Lord. You, ha- you have to be able to show it in your life. You have to show it by the way that you live out that faith. And he's saying these, these believers here, they, they might give lip service to God. They, they might say they believe the gospel, but the way they are actually living, the way they're actually planning out their lives, they're doing it as if God didn't exist. You can say you believe that Jesus is Lord, Christian, at the same time as living your everyday life as if you're a practical atheist. These brothers and sisters have forgotten him. That's what James is rebuking them for. He's saying one of the biggest, most pervasive sins you can commit in your life is simply to forget God. To simply go about your life and live as if he didn't really exist. You're not necessarily breaking a bunch of commandments, these sins of commission. You're, 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 it's these subtle sins of omission. You're just living as if he didn't exist. How often does that describe our life? Does that describe your week? What's the first thing you did when you got up in the morning? Maybe reach for my phone, scroll through it, open my calendar, what's today hold, get up, shower, breakfast, get kids ready, normal stuff, and maybe chat with your, your roommate or your friend or your spouse um, about your plans for the day, then go about your day and really live it as if God didn't really exist. There's no reference to him at all in our everyday lives. If we're completely honest, we can go a while and do that. We can go hours in your day. You can go days without any reference to him. Maybe for you, you're thinking, Flip, maybe last Sunday since I was sitting in that chair, since I've really given him any quality thoughts. Here's what he's rebuking them and us possibly for, is living or working or planning or operating without continual and relentless reference to God intellectually and emotionally. Say that again. He's, he's rebuking them for living or working or planning or operating without continual and relentless reference to God intellectually and emotionally. Tim Keller says the, the sin here is this, this failure to connect what you're doing in your life with what God has done for you. It's this failure to connect what you're doing, what you're thinking, what you're feeling with what he has done for you. It's a failure to connect it with the gospel. James isn't rebuking them for planning. He's not rebuking them for, for profit-making. He's rebuking them for their exclusion of God. They planned as if they themselves were omniscient, omnipotent, and invulnerable. 
Simply put, they planned as if they were God. In Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21, Jesus gives a parable about this, um, this, this really direct parable um, that illustrates the folly of presumptuously leaving God out of your plans. And James would have been familiar with this. I, I think he had it in his, his mind as he was writing this. Um, let me read it. And Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, this rich man, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Sounds like a good life, isn't it? This guy has it going for him. His, his land is producing plentifully. Crops are just growing out of control. More than what he needs. So he's like, what do I do? I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to store it up. And then I'm going to live as if it's all fine. I'm going to live as if everything is sorted. But in verse 20, God said to him, you fool, for tonight your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Jesus' point in that parable is the person who plans out their life as if God didn't exist is a fool. And James is saying, don't be foolish in your planning as if you were God. Don't, don't be a fool and plan as if you are all-knowing, as if you are all-powerful. Do you see how in, both in James' rebuke and in Jesus' parable, the, the foolishness, it really hinges on, you think you know. You, you, you think you know what's ahead, but you don't. And what James is saying, that, that's what James says in, in verse 14. In verse 14, he, he tries to, uh, to, to bring these self-confident merchants back to the proper sense of their place in this world. He says, you, you make all these plans, yet you don't know what tomorrow brings. You're planning as if you do, very confidently, very, but you have no idea what even tomorrow holds. Only one person knows what tomorrow holds, and that's God, not you. And he asks this real pointed question. He says, what is your life? And he gives them this really honest answer. He says, your life is a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. That word can mean smoke or vapor, <laughs> well, whichever of those three you use, it's incredibly humbling for it to be described as that's what your life is like. This is it. Theological understanding of what your life is like. The smoke, it's here for a little while, then give it a minute, and you won't even, it's like it was never here. That's your life. James is pointing out the, that human life is 
transitory. It's here one day, it's completely gone the next. He's saying the problem for these people is they are living, they're planning as if God didn't exist. That they're living their lives with this heart attitude as if they know all, as if, as if they know what's best, as if they are the writer of their story. And James says the solution to that problem is to humble yourself. The solution of that problem is to realize that you haven't a clue what tomorrow holds. It's to realize that your life is a mist. It's smoke. It's a vapor. Here for, for a minute and then gone. That's the opposite message that the world is screaming at you. It's the opposite message of Instagram, which says, here's a platform for you. What's your story? What's your message? Tell it to the world. We're going to put a spotlight on your beautiful life for just to be on display. But James says, no, you're a mist. You're here for a minute, and then you'll be gone without a trace the next. Raise your hand if you know your great-grandfather's first name. We had one in the last gathering, two, three, maybe it takes you a minute. That, that's, a, that's a person, his blood is flowing through your veins. My kids will, will remember me, my, my, hopefully their children will remember me, but after that, I'm gone. Just erased from history. <laughs> no one will know that you ever existed in about 80 to 100 years. The transitory nature of human life that James is reminding us of here, um, it's a recurring through theme all through Scripture. Proverbs 27.1 warns, don't boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what that day will bring. James is essentially quoting that, isn't he? That's what, that's what Jesus' parable is all about. Um, Psalm 39 Verse 5 and 6, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely man goes about as a shadow. Job repeatedly refers to life as a breath. Oh, that's your life. That's that's. Jesus' point in that parable. Here's this man who is so happy with his plans. He made all these plans, got it all mapped out, store this up, eat, drink, be happy. And God's like, no, you're dead tonight. It's opposite of what the world is screaming at you. So it's incredibly important for us to understand Has anybody, there's more people with, with kids in the, the 930, um, but has anybody been to a, a children's birthday party? Not as a child yourself, you've all been to a child's birthday party, but as an adult, especially if, if you have small children and you're bringing them to someone's birthday party, um, here's a scene that, that can happen. <laughs> um, at a birthday party, there's party, like, fav party favor bags. It's like a plastic bag with 
like a, a plastic whistle that'll last maybe a day, maybe a notepad with a little pencil and some gummy sweets in it. That's what you get when you go to a, party, a birthday party as a kid. Um, if it's your birthday, you have a table full of presents, don't you? Um, and here's a scene you might come across um, at a birthday party is a child holding their plastic whistle bag and but looking over at this table full of presents and thinking, this isn't fair. I, I want that, but I'm stuck with this. There's two options for the, the parent of that child. Option one, if you want to raise a, a child who is self-centered and, and sees themselves as the center of the world, you will say, I'm so sorry, honey. Let's go to Smith's right now and we're going to buy you some presents too. The other option, if you want to raise a child who understands what James is saying, you'll get down and you'll gently and lovingly say, it's not your party. It's not your party. That's what James is trying to remind us here. Your life, your world, this universe is not your party. You've been invited to the party of another. Everything in this universe, every good thing that you've been given, every physical thing you will see, it's meant to celebrate the existence and the glory of another. This, this story that's unfolding, it's not your story. You're part of it. You're part of the story. You're an important part of the story. Okay, you are made in the image of God. You have value. You have dignity. You're an essential part of the story, but the story's not about you. Your life is a mist. It's absolutely vital that we understand that truth and that we live in light of it. Living in light of that truth is what James describes in verse 15, where he says, instead, you ought to say this. Instead of what? Instead of what they were, how they were planning in verse 13, planning as if God didn't exist. Instead of that, James says, you should be saying, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So again, James isn't saying stop making plans because in verse 15, there's still plans being made. There's still, we'll do this and that. But he prefaces those plans with, if the Lord wills. So their, their plans are contingent on God and his plans, his will. If it's in his will, then we'll live and we'll, we'll carry out our plans. But only if it's in his will. You see the difference there? One scholar wrote this. The scriptures give many marks of a true Christian, such as love to God, repentance from sin, humility, devotion to God's glory, prayer, love for others, distinction from the way of the Lord, growth. But nothing more clearly summarizes the character of a genuine believer than a desire to do the will of God. You see this all through Scripture, that the, 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 the truest mark of a genuine Christian is they are someone who desires to do the will of their heavenly Father. Psalm 40, verse 8, David wrote, I, I delight to do your will, 
O my God. Your law is within my heart. Psalm 143, verse 10, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Jesus taught in Mark 3, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, sister, and my mother. He's my family. Or in Matthew 7, that that sober warning in, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter in. Peter exhorted Christians to live the rest of their time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. John describes believers like this, as those who do the will of God and live forever. The greatest example of this was Jesus himself. So even for Jesus, this wasn't something that he just called you to do. It's something that he lived out in his life and exemplified. In John 6, verse 38, he defines his messianic mission when he said, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And even in in his darkest hour, in that that agony of Gethsemane, he's facing the, the awful reality of the cross. What does he pray? My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He's not looking forward to the cross at all. But then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus perfectly modeled this most essential element to a relationship with God, which is obedience to his will, not your will. Notice he's He's saying it's not enough simply to recognize that your life is transitory and uncertain. You need to recognize that, but it's not enough because that's not even especially religious. Ask any like atheistic scientist and they'll say, they'll tell you the same. In the grand scheme of the universe, you are nothing. So the recognition that your life is a mist, a vapor, a smoke, it's not enough, which is why James calls them to go even further, which is... He calls them to recognize that their lives are in the hands of God. Notice he says, if the Lord wills, rather than simply if if God wills. So in James' time, there weren't a lot of atheists or agnostics. and Pretty much everyone believed in a God or gods of some sort. So that phrase, if if God wills or if, if the gods will, was pretty common. So that's why James says, if the Lord wills. He's, he's bringing, he's talking about Yahweh. He's, he's coming back to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's saying the one true God, if it's in his will, then we will live and do this and that. And, and hear what he's saying. Notice, this, notice he doesn't, he's not saying if the Lord wills and we continue to live, then we'll do this and that. It's important that you hear the, where the then is placed in this sentence. It's not, hey, these are the two things that, that need to happen first. The Lord wills it and we continue to live, then we'll carry on our plans. That's not what he says. He says, if the Lord wills, then we will live and do this and that. So you have to read that in light of, of his reference that he just made to your life being a mist. James makes this 
makes the continuance of life itself contingent on God. You, you whose life is a mist, you who are here for a, a little bit, then you vanish away. James says, even the continuance of your feeble life is contingent on God's will. If the Lord wills, we'll live. So obviously, if that's the case, if your life is dependent on Him, then so are your plans. So your, your plans should be subject to the same condition. He's saying, by all means, make your plans, set your goals. But James says, don't you dare make them as if you are the one that sustains your every breath. Don't you dare make those plans as if you are the author of your story. When's the last time you asked, God, what's your will for my life? When's the last time you asked that? How, how do you want to use me? What's, what's your will for me today, tomorrow, over the next year? My, my life is, is a breath here on this earth. How can you use my brief moment for your glory for your plans? What, what's your will for our family? When's the last time you asked those kind of questions? Or are you just cruising through your life, completely unaware of his sovereignty, of his plans, of his power for you? James and his brother Jesus would say, living like that is foolish. You're a fool. When's the last time you asked, God, what's your will for my life? And let me warn you, it's a dangerous question to ask. It's, it, it could bring a lot of change in your life. It'll definitely bring sacrifice. Your, your plans may change. They might not. They, they, they might not change drastically. The Lord is still going to continue to call Solicitors and teachers and builders and accountants. Your, your plans might not change, but that's not James's point. That the change that James is calling for in the lives of his brothers and sisters here is a, is a change of what's in their heart. It's this internal change. It's a change of their, their attitude the, the natural way of, of planning out in verse 13, he says it's evil because you're boasting in your arrogance. You're planning as if you are God. The change he's calling for here is for humility, to recognize your place in the world, to recognize that you are a mist, that your life is dependent on the will of God. So James says, change your attitude in the way you are making your plans. Paul's a great example of this. Read his, his letters. He's always making plans. He's always stating his desires, and, but they're always subject to the will of God. I'm going to come be with you if the Lord permits it. I'm going to send Timothy to, to come be with you. He's going to bring you this. Hey, have him bring my coat back. Like he's, he's thinking about the future. I'm going to come be with you but always if the Lord wills. 
how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Calvin says James is urging that we do nothing without the permission of God. Which makes you kind of bristle a bit, isn't it? Because we want to be our own masters. We want to be autonomous. He's saying, nah, we do nothing without seeking God's permission, without seeking his will first. Because our highest priority as followers of Jesus is his will, not ours. And be, be aware of the danger of the legalism of this text. So there's nothing magical about those words, if the Lord wills, and Lord willing. Those aren't magical words that you just kind of tack on to everything you say. He's not saying, add those words and then you'll be fine. That's, that's called legalism, okay? Here's, here's what you need to do. Do it and you're fine. No, James is calling for a heart transformation, He wants us to adapt this attitude that's expressed by saying those words as a fixed fixed perspective from which we view all of life. Let me say that again. He wants us to adapt this attitude expressed by those words as a fixed perspective from which we view all of life. What do you say about the speech, the tongue? What comes from your tongue? It's simply a reflection of what's in your heart. And he's saying the same thing here. Say the words. Say, say them, that's fine, Lord willing. But what I want you to do is adopt the attitude of those words as a fixed perspective from which you now view all of life. That's our perspective. Not my will, but yours be done. Here's the bottom line. Here's what James is really talking about. He's talking about Grace. He wants you to recognize God's grace in your life. He doesn't want you simply to sprinkle magical words through your pious life. He wants you to recognize that all of life is grace from God. That's the core of what James is really getting across here. And when you recognize God's grace, there's one thing that it will bring, and it's always humility. That's what James wants you to recognize. The fact that you are alive, the fact that your heart is beating right now in your chest, the fact that you woke up and you are still breathing, that is God's grace in your life. If God gave us what we deserve, we'd be wiped out. It's only by God's grace that we are alive, that you're living, that you're here today. And it's, it's from that perspective, having that perspective of your fragility, that perspective that you are a mist, that you are, that your living is completely dependent on him. Having that perspective of his grace, it changes the way you live your life. So when you, when you sink down into despair, when, you're, when you get deeply disappointed with the way life is going, you must remember that all of this is grace. You woke up this morning because of God's grace. You have reason to rejoice. But on the flip side, when things start going really well, when your life starts to look like that rich man in in, in Jesus' parable, 
when your life is producing plentifully, when people are congratulating you on how fantastic things are, you need to remember that all of life is God's grace. It's not your party. It's, it's about Him. It's about His glory, not yours. You, you don't deserve any of the good things that come your way. None of this is possible without God's grace. So in those moments, whether you're in the deep valley of despair or whether you're on the mountaintop rejoicing, don't you dare forget that it's God's will, that it's His grace in your life, that you are a mist and it's Him carrying you through by His grace. Having that kind of perspective on life will change your attitude. It will change the way you think about life. It will change the way you make plans in your life. Doesn't mean all will be grand. Doesn't mean you'll never worry again. Doesn't mean you'll, you'll, you'll not still experience loss. You'll not still experience sadness or hurt. It also doesn't mean you'll stop making plans and, and setting goals. But when you remind yourself that it's all by God's grace, that's all according to His will, it'll keep you from getting puffed up and arrogant when things are going your way, but it will also keep you from sinking down into that pit of despair when things get hard. It's all by God's grace. James is calling us to a practical and a functional Godward life. You've got to recognize that the sin in your life, the sin in your, your heart, it pulls you in another direction. It's always going to pull you in another direction until the day you die. It's pulling you towards placing you at the center of the story, placing you at the center of your universe. And brothers and sisters, you need to recognize that you are not. as a blood-bought new creation whose life and purpose is now found in Jesus Christ, everything you do, even the normal, ordinary parts of your everyday life, those things should now be carried out with that underlying question, Lord, what's your will for my life? What, what, are, what are you doing here? How can I be part of your plan? How can I, in this moment, this ordinary moment, glorify you? How can I be part of what you are doing?